Let's I, see if I have a question. There we go. Okay. So, is there anything in the Bible that indicates Jesus' birthday or day of death? Good question. Actually, I think the, the young man who asked that question isn't here right now, or he isn't here yet, I'm not sure. But um, he, he was wondering about this, um, can we nail down a date? And it's interesting, whenever we talk about the date of Jesus' birth, what are we talking about? Christmas, right? And then naturally the next question is, should we celebrate Christmas or not? I'm not going to get into that, just so you know. Um, But the question is, does the Bible say anything about his birth that would help us know when he was born? And the answer is, not really. I mean, there are indicators, there's some clues. Um, You can find some things, like for instance, in Luke 3.23, it says that Jesus was about 30 years old when he was baptized. And if you nail that down, there's some details that you can try to to nail that down to a certain time frame, maybe around 27 AD or so. Um, Work backwards from that, you end up about 4 BC. And um, Herod was alive, Herod the Great was alive when Jesus was born, and uh, they fled from uh, um, Bethlehem in order to escape the um, murderous intent of Herod, who killed a bunch of babies, right? So they fled to Egypt during that time, and then God said they could come back because Herod was dead. Well, Herod died at around 4 BC. So Jesus would have been born around 4 BC or a little bit earlier in order to make that work. The question is, what time of the year, though? And that one's a harder question to answer because the Bible doesn't give us a clear indication. One guy, uh, let's see if I can find his name. Um, his, his name, he's a theologian, Hippolytus of Rome. It's the third century, mid-200s, and Hippolytus um, is the first person to suggest the December 25 date. And, uh, and his reasoning is, he, he starts with um, March and says that Jesus was conceived in March. And so March 25, nine months later, December 25, right? And then in the third century, another guy, another theologian says, well, the reason that that makes sense is because in Luke uh, 1, 18 and and 19, um, it talks about this, um, the, the, the conception of John the Baptist, who was about six months older than Jesus. And that would have been at Yom Kippur, and Yom Kippur would have been in October. And so add 15 months to Yom Kippur Kippur is the Day of Atonement, no, the, the, yeah, the Day of Atonement. So um, add 15 months to that, and you end up around December, January time. So December isn't actually the worst month ever. But then you've got some scientists like uh, this guy at the University of Cambridge, Colin Humphreys, he wrote in the quarterly journal of the Royal Astronomical Society that um, there was a comet recorded in 5 BC that kind of seemed to match what the Bible describes as a star of Bethlehem. And uh, that was in April. And so some people say Jesus was born in the spring. And also they would point to the shepherds and their sheep. And uh, interestingly, the, shep- the sheep that they would have been breeding would probably be these, um, let's see, I have it written down. It's a word that I've never seen before. <laughs> it's like a-, a wallies or something like that. 
I don't know. Anyway, um, so they, uh, they're breeding this, this sheep, and that particular type of sheep likes to give birth in the winter. And in the Judean winter, it would have been the rainy season, and okay. there would have been more grass um, f- available for the sheep to graze in. Okay. And so it's not beyond doubt or beyond the possibility that Jesus is born in December or January time frame. Okay. December 25 isn't necessarily the worst time to celebrate his birth. He could have been born on any one of the 365 days of the year, though. Yes. <laughs> we don't know. And, and I think it's worth pointing out that if the Bible doesn't give us the details, it probably isn't essential for us to know them. Thank you. Very interesting. Well, okay, so the, the last one, the, it said the birth and death, so the, the death one is super easy because there are two things. One we're going to study in a, a few nights, and that's Daniel 9, a prophecy that points us to the very year that Jesus would be um, crucified. So that's going to that's gonna tie things up for that. It's going to make a lot of sense when we do that prophecy as far as the time goes. But we, we know the time of year, the season, pretty clearly because the Bible says that Jesus, um, there, it's uh, Luke chapter... Um, 22, John 20, and Matthew 27 all describe this experience, and it says that it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the Passover. And Jesus celebrates the Passover on what would be our Thursday evening. But the Jews, they, they counted their days differently than we do. And so they would, they would start their day in the nighttime and end their day at the, the next nighttime. So um, our Thursday night would have been their Friday evening, and so he begins um, a celebration of, uh, of the Passover on the night of Friday, our Thursday evening. And that's the Lord's Supper that we read about there. And then he goes through the Lord's Supper and he goes to the, um, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then that, as the, the day is dawning, they're at, at Pilate's court. And then he gets put on the cross that morning about nine or so, stays there for about six hours it's recorded that he's dead by 3 p.m. And so we know it's a Friday of Passover, and it's at 3 p.m. And there's two possible Passovers that have a Friday um, around that time. 30 A.D., there's a Passover. And then April 3 of 33 A.D., there's a Passover that is on a Friday. And so we can kind of narrow it the year down even based on that. Um, So that one, the Bible actually gives us enough specifics we can figure out. Good. Thank you. So did you want to do a follow-up question on... Where I'll follow up on another question we had. Yeah, so um, Monday night we talked about the question about the divinity of Jesus. And uh, it's, it's kind of a big topic in Christianity. Wars have been fought over this subject about whether Jesus was, is God or not, whether he... In fact, they, they had this whole um, discussion in, in one council, and they were using these really interesting Greek words to try to describe the nature of Jesus. Um, is he made of the same stuff as the Father? Um, did, did the Father make him? Um, and, and so the, 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 the Greek word, if you care to know it, the Greek word that they wanted to use is homoousios. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It just means that, that he's, he's uh, the, the same as the Father, but different then. Anyway, so um, there's one verse that I thought would be helpful just looking at this story. What does the Bible say about Jesus? And it's Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 to 11. And Paul is describing Jesus, and he's wanting us to have the same heart, the same attitude as he does, um, and, and the same humility in giving of ourselves. 
But this is what he describes Jesus as in doing that. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So he says he's equal with God, didn't think that it was robbery because that's his own thing, right? Like you, don't, you can't steal from yourself, can you? And so he's, he is God, but then he says he came in the same likeness as mankind. So he's got the flesh and bones of us. So he's us, but he's also God. That's Paul's perspective. And he keeps going on. He says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of... Um, those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And now you and I, when we read that, we're just like, okay, cool. Sounds good. But if you were a, uh, a believer at the time that Paul was writing this, mm-hmm. um, you might think that Paul was being scandalous because Paul was quoting from the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, verses 22 and 23, and he says, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. So when Paul says this about Jesus, everybody knew that he was claiming Jesus to be uh, Jehovah God, the God of creation, um, the God of Isaiah. So in Paul's mind, Jesus is absolutely God and also one of us. Amen. Thank so. you. All right. So we have something new tonight. Yes, it's right behind new. you. You okay. want to grab it? Yes. I promised early on that, that if you register, that, that there's, uh, there's going to be cool things. So um, uh, we have... Uh, made a, uh, somehow made a selection uh, from those who've checked in tonight, and we're going to give away The Shadow Empire. It's a DVD and study guide series by Sean Boonstra, and tonight we're actually going to uh, touch on a little bit of history of a guy named Constantine the Great. Constantine ruled the Roman Empire in the 300s, and what he did while he was ruler of the Roman Empire changed the world, and you and I feel his impact even today. So this is called Shadow Empire, and uh, we thought we'd give one away. Who are we going to give it away to? Linda Elliston. Ooh, <laughs> there you go. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So tonight, our subject is the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, and we're going to look at Revelation chapter 6, and the big, the big goal tonight is to get a structure of prophecy. Kind of, we're going to do a survey of the whole chapter, Revelation 6, and get some structure in prophecy. Um, and then, um, just to kind of show you what's coming up, on Friday night, the time of the end, part one, we're going to look at the biggest prophecy in all of the Bible. And I think we're going to find some things starting to connect. The more we look at, the more we compare, the more we're like, oh yeah, I've seen that before. That, I, I know those words, right? So Daniel 2 was on um, Friday night, uh, a little more over, not quite a week ago, and we looked at Daniel 2 and the, the image with the, the head of gold and the chest and arms of silver and the belly and thighs of brass, etc., and we found out that it tracks with history. 
So we're going to look at uh, Daniel chapter 8, and we're going to see some comparisons between Daniel 2 and Daniel 8, and I think you're, you're going to find that to be fascinating. But then, because this is a big prophecy and it has such a big impact, we're going to keep going on Saturday night and kind of wrap that topic up on Saturday night. And now I wanted to mention something um, that, that's kind of important. We're going to keep going on Sunday night, um, but um, because of how the rental arrangement worked here, we're going to be moving on Sunday night up to the Cornerstone Christian School, which just is a, a couple miles north of Three Mile. Um, so a little bit farther away if you live on the south side, uh, but um, they have a nice gym and it'll be a comfortable place to meet. And uh, works out with the rental situation. But anyway, we'll, I'll, I think I sent an, a letter to those of you who've registered about that. I'll send another one um, just as a reminder, and I'll mention it again on, on a future night. So Sunday night, we're talking about the appearing. What's it going to be like when Jesus comes the second time? And there's lots of different ideas about what the second coming is, the rapture and all kinds of other um, ideas. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at five concrete non-negotiables, what the Bible says very clearly, very plainly. It's not obscure. It's not something we can say, uh, well, it might be this or it might be that. The Bible has at least five specific things that we can take home and say, the Bible says this is what Jesus' second coming is going to be like. So that's going to be fun on on Sunday night. Um, We're going to skip Monday night and then Tuesday night, the anatomy of evil. The question is, if God is good, the Bible describes God as love. If God is love, how can He allow evil? And we're going to look at a war, a universal war that the Bible describes in Revelation chapter 12. And interestingly, um, if we in our Western minds are telling a story, we like to save the climax for close to the end of the story. We build the characters, we develop the ideas, and then we, we, we get to this like, moment where there's so much tension, and then, and then there's this release, and we end the story. But that, that tension and release happens almost at the very end, and you'd expect that to be the case in Revelation, but it's not really. The climax, the most important, significant uh, points in Revelation are right in the middle, and... Uh, the this biblical scholars call this a chiasm um, after the the Greek letter um, xi, which is kind of like our X. It looks like our X, but it sounds more like a ch. I actually have a hard time pronouncing it. But anyway, so it's it's that X, and things kind of build, 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 and in the middle they get to the pinnacle, and then they go back down the other side. And that's where we are in Revelations 12, 13, and 14. Those three chapters are really the climax of Revelation. And so um, on uh, Tuesday night, we're going to get into Revelation 12. And then on Wednesday night, um, we're going to look at Revelation 14. So right in the middle, the climax of Revelation, the big stuff that Revelation is talking about is going to be on Tuesday and Wednesday night next week. And in the ultimate mind game, we're going to look at... uh, well, the, the first part of Revelation 14 describes these people that, that have the Father's name in their foreheads, and we'll explore that idea of foreheads and what's the Father's name, uh, but the interesting thing that we get to explore is the concept of victory over sin, and I think you'll find some, some valuable things that I'm going to share that will help your, your Christian life, your, your life in general. It'll help you live um, a, a better life. And I think you'll appreciate that. 
So no, no meeting on Thursday next week, but the, on Friday next week, the coming of the lawless one, we're going to look in 2 Thessalonians and explore something Paul says about an end-time character, the lawless one, who plays a big part in Revelation. So tonight, our subject, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and before we dive in, let's have a prayer. You had a question. The rest of them will be up there. After, after Saturday night, that'll be our last night here, and then Sunday and on, we'll be up at the Cornerstone School. So, all right, let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, we just are wanting your spirit to lead us. You promised that you'd send your spirit and that you'd lead us into all truth. So open the Bible for us, help us to understand it. And I, just, I pray that, that you would uh, take away my sin and help me to communicate in a way that would honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, let's start by going back to the very beginning of the book of Revelation. We're going to hold our finger in Revelation 6, but if you start in Revelation chapter 1, right at the beginning, there's an important principle that we've seen before, and it says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, just a second, I hit a button and it changed everything. I got to scroll back to it. Okay. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servant the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, this is an important concept. The, the thing that, that he's describing here, it says, must shortly come to pass. And some people would like to take Revelation and push it all the way to the end of time and say it's everything's future to us, or pretty much everything is future to us. But according to the very first part of Revelation 1, the things that are in Revelation are beginning to happen shortly. They're beginning to happen in the time of John. Now, some might point, and point out and say, well, Revelation 22, after Revelation's already done, Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. But that's a different word. The, the manner of Jesus' return is, is not the same as the timing of the fulfillment of these prophecies. The fact that he says this is shortly going to, to come is a, a timing issue. But when he says, behold, I'm coming quickly, it's not as much a timing issue as it is like an a, um, instantaneous thing, you know? Like, like um, doesn't mean that uh, if you go out uh, shopping and uh, your, your wife says that she's going to come back soon, right? You, you might expect her to take a while, but you know, you expect her to be back before very long. Now, on the other hand, if your son goes out shopping and he says, I'm going to be racing in when I come home, it has nothing to do with when he's coming home. It's the manner in which he returns that he's talking about. And so in Revelation 22, when Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly, it's about the manner of his return and not the the actual timing of his return. But this is about timing. This says, shortly, I'm coming back. I mean, these things are going to happen in the very near future. And this is something that we, we see all through prophecy. Most of the time, when the Bible is giving us a prophecy, it begins with the time of the prophet and continues to the end. Uh, more often than not, we'll say. For example, in Daniel 2, when we studied that a few nights ago, 
we, we started with the head of gold. And Daniel happens to be writing at the time when this head of gold, Babylon, was the kingdom in charge. And, and it's, you know, clear. We saw that in the Bible. And then it continues through time, Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome and then the divided Western Europe. And then, and then the next thing is Jesus coming with that stone that comes and, and crushes all the, the whole statue. So it's, it's from Daniel's time, fulfills through history until the second coming. And so this is a similar principle that Revelation is wanting to point us to. These things are starting in the time of John, the, the, the one who's writing these prophecies. And they're going to be fulfilling through time generally fulfilling at the end of time in some end-time context. All right, so um, when, when you see this uh, idea, this concept in Bible prophecy, you find it all over the place. So Revelation chapters 2 and 3 describe a series of churches, and uh, these are the, the seven churches that you find, and I'd love to just really dive into these, but I'm going to I'm going to dissatisfy you and, and spend about three minutes on it, <laughs> but, but hopefully we'll get to come back. So, um, Revelation 2 and 3, we've got these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and these were real cities in Asia Minor, our modern-day Turkey, and they, they had real significance to John and the fact that he ends up sending these letters to them, real letters to real churches and real situations, um, is... It's, there's no mystery to that. It actually happened, right? That's part of historical record. Um, but over the centuries, as Bible students have explored the book of Revelation, they started seeing these interesting patterns. What, what the Bible describes as these seven churches are not just seven churches in John's time and seven immediate fulfillments in John's time, but they also correlate to seven periods of church history. And so you have Ephesus. It's the church that's the the desirable church. It's the church of the apostles. It's a pure church. It had relatively little doctrinal problems. It was a church that um, Acts says they shared everything in common. Um, They they protected each other and helped each other, right? And so Ephesus is this desirable church. But then you've got Smyrna, and Smyrna is a crushed and persecuted church. It represents the Christians who lived during the persecution of the Roman Empire. And uh, the word Smyrna is actually related to the word myrrh. And tonight we're going to mention a guy named Diocletian, who from 303 to 313 persecuted the, the Christians so severely, many of them died. We'll, we'll talk about it in a, in a minute. But in the prophecy about Smyrna, it talks about a 10-year period of time that they would experience persecution. And you find that to be true in the, the experience of Diocletian from 303 to 313. So Smyrna is this period of time where the church was under severe persecution. And that word myrrh, Smyrna, um, myrrh is a, uh, in order to get the the sweet smelling stuff, it has to be crushed. And that was their experience. And then Pergamos, a church that begins to fragment, becomes weak, and um, many years go by and they start compromising the original teaching of the, um, of the apostles. And then Thyatira, this is the church that really starts misbehaving, and they, they completely abandon um, the early Christian principles. Uh, many scholars call this the dark ages of Christianity, and it's a time when Christians' behavior was uh, anything but biblical. We'll put it that way. 
They were, they were killing each other. You know, sometimes we disagree, right? And I mentioned earlier on, uh, we have so many different ideas in this room, so many people from different perspectives, and it would be, it would be unhealthy for us to um, expect that we would all think the exact same way. But, but there's a difference between disagreeing and being disagreeable, and we just never want to be disagreeable. But the church in the Dark Ages, you disagreed with, the, with what, what the church was wanting you to think, and, uh, and they would kill you. Very disagreeable. <laughs> Um, we don't want to do that here. <laughs> so um, then there's the church of Sardis. And um, the church of Sardis is a period in Christian history where people start opening their Bibles again. And it, it, people from all over the world, from all different backgrounds, start saying, the Bible, the Bible, let's look back at the Bible again. And, and all kinds of beautiful things started coming out. And then it's the church of Philadelphia. And, and this is like a global missionary movement that begins. And they're sharing Jesus with the whole world. And and you think about it, Philadelphia, it means brotherly love. And don't we have a, a city named that here in, in Pennsylvania? Uh, the, the city of brotherly love. And, and in this case, um, it really accurately describes the Christian movement around the 1800s. The time of the, of the Second Great Awakening, the First and Second Great Awakening, is this Philadelphia church. And then comes the church of Laodicea. And unfortunately, and quite accurately, it describes the church just before Jesus' return. And it says that, that, they are, that they think they're good, rich, increased with goods, in need of nothing. But really, they're wretched and blind and naked, and they need everything. <laughs> so that's, that's the church of Laodicea, and it and really quite accurately describes the church that we experience today. Now, these churches describe this time from John's period all the way up to the second coming. And uh, Christians disagree about lots of stuff in Revelation. That's just a fact. Um, but about Revelation 2 and 3, there's very little disagreement. Almost everybody agrees that this is the case, that it, it tracks the Christian experience through history. So, the, the next thing that happens in our, um, in our story is um, we, we did Revelation 4 and 5. The next thing that happens is Revelation 6. And Revelation 6 follows the same pattern as Revelation 2 and 3. It, it tracks from John's day to the time of Jesus, but from a little bit different perspective. But now notice this number 7 again. What does 7 represent? Completeness or perfection. It's, it's kind of the number of God. There, there's... Uh, there's the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven um, plagues or bowls. Um, there's sevens all over in Revelation. And it's whenever you see seven, you know that God is telling you the, the complete story. He's telling you all the pieces of this part of, that, of, of this story of the church through that time from John's day to the second coming. Now, another principle that we should point out before we dive into Revelation 6 is that when, uh, when God is, is telling us the stories of prophecy, He gives us kind of bite-sized chunks, and then He, he repeats it again. And uh, so, if you, if you read this, like, for instance, Daniel 2, and then you read Daniel 8, which we'll do tomorrow night, um, and, and you say, oh, those are different prophecies entirely, um, then you might, you might make some interesting assumptions that aren't 
what the Bible intends. But if you recognize this principle, then you're like, oh, look at that, they match. And suddenly, there's new details in Daniel 8 that Daniel 2 didn't have, and it opens your eyes to what God is trying to reveal. And this is kind of what's happening with the seven churches and then the seven seals. You kind of put those things on top of each other. It repeats the same time period, but enlarges or expands or um, adds detail to some of those things that the, the previous prophecy didn't have. So this is a, an important principle to recognize. All right, so the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, last time we talked about Revelation 4 and 5, and we found Jesus. Well, we found the Father, and He's holding a scroll with seven seals on it. And there's angels that really have an urgency to know what those seven, what, what's in that scroll. And they're saying, who, who can open it? And, and who, was anybody worthy to open it? No one was worthy. And then shows up this lamb, a lamb that appeared as though it had been slain. Who is that lamb? Jesus is that lamb. And, and he is worthy. Everybody said he is worthy, and they, and they worshiped him for it. And then he took the scroll, and it's Revelation 6 where the lamb begins to open the seals on that scroll. And, and when he does this, as he opens the seals, he's revealing what is possible and what will happen because he gave his life, because he is the one that's worthy, because he, what, of what he accomplished on the cross. Now, I want to I point out something. When Jesus opens these seals, he's honest with us. Do you ever not want people to be honest with you? <laughs> I mean, sometimes you just want people to tell you that they like you, whether they do or not, you know, because it's more comfortable when people tell us good things about ourselves, you know. You say, does this make me look fat? And you, you don't want to hear anything but, oh, no, honey. <laughs> but Jesus is not doing that here. Jesus is super honest about who we are, and he just kind of turns the mirror around and says, look at yourselves, this is what you're like. And it's not, a, it's not the prettiest sight in Revelation 6. He's going to tell us some things that aren't nice about ourselves. But just be honest with me. Wouldn't you rather it be that way? I mean, is there any hope for us if God doesn't, doesn't level with us about the realness of our experience? We need to understand not just the good stuff, but the bad stuff too. And if you read the whole Bible, you're going to go through, you know, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and you're going to find so many different experiences where, well, God's people weren't being very good. I mean, there's some stories in the book of of Judges that you just scratch your head and say, why in the world did they think of doing that? Because it just seems so crazy. God is not going to sugarcoat the reality of our experience. And so when we look in Revelation 6, he's not sugarcoating this story. He's going to tell us the, the accurate picture of the church. All right, so are you ready to look? Shall we open one of the seals and see what's behind it? Okay, Revelation 6, verse 1. Now I say when the Lamb opened one of the seals, now I saw rather, when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. God wants us to see. Just, I mean, we've, we've tried to 
look at this in five different ways already. God is revealing something to us. He's not hiding something from us. He's revealing it to us. So he, he's interested in us looking. And he says, come and see. And then in verse 2, and I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. So you've got a man riding on a white horse and he's busy, busy conquering something. Um, what's the white horse and what's he conquering? Uh, these are good questions to ask. Well, as far as the white goes, the color white is used lots in the Bible. For example, in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus has hair as white as snow, or as white as wool. In chapter 2, the faithful are promised a white stone. In chapter 3, the faithful are wearing white garments. In chapter 4, the elders in heaven are dressed in white. In chapter 6, the martyrs are given white robes. In chapter 7, a huge numberless crowd is dressed in white. In chapter 14, Jesus returns on a white cloud. And in chapter 19, Jesus rides a white horse. And in chapter 20, God sits on a white throne. I mean, it's this white is all through this story of Revelation. So what does white mean? Purity? Yeah, we, we have a sense for that already. Um, Isaiah 1.18, we want the Bible to interpret itself, right? So Isaiah 1.18 tells us, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So sin is the red like crimson, and forgiveness and purity is the white as wool. So these comparisons are things that, that Revelation is drawing on, and this horse is a white horse. This is a pure horse. Um, so the um, alternative to a pure horse would be an impure one, right? So we're going to see a red horse in a minute, and we'll, we'll look at that. Red ends up being this, well, it's, it's about sin and evil, and every time you have sin and evil, you also have death. And so this blood and death are connected to sin and evil. But we'll get to that in just a minute. White represents purity. That's the focus. And even today, you, you get a, a young lady who's going to her, her wedding day, and she's dressed in, in white, generally. In fact, there is a beautiful dress when my wife was looking for a wedding dress, and I was like, this is amazing, you should wear this. And it had just, just you know, some highlights of red on it. And she was like, no. <laughs> I was like, why? What's wrong? I didn't, I didn't know there was supposed to be some, like, I don't know, metaphor to the whole thing. I just thought it was supposed to be pretty. Um, but no, 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 it had to be pure white, or she was not going to wear it. So we, we have this idea, white is the color of purity and forgiveness, and so in Revelation 12, you end up with a woman who is dressed in white, and it symbolizes the pure church of God. How do I know that the woman in Revelation 12 represents the church? Well, you just go back and find it in the Bible. Ezekiel 16, God describes His people as His bride. Jeremiah 6, the Bible says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. So a, a pure woman dressed in white represents God's pure church. And then you find in Revelation 17, there's another woman, and she's dressed in red, and, uh, and it literally says that she's a prostitute, right? And so this impure 
woman represents the impure church of God. And let's be clear, God's church has been impure more than once. The only way that we can be pure is through the forgiveness of Jesus. And, and so there is, a, there is a pure church of God, people who accept that forgiveness. And then there's people that just decide that they're going to do it on the, their own. And, and that, that ends up being the, uh, the not-so-pure church. So, all right. Um, so this, this white horse experience is the apostolic church. This is the early Christian church that is going forth to conquer Conquering and to conquer. What are they conquering? Well, according to Jesus, the disciples were supposed to go into all the world, preaching and teaching and baptizing and, and uh, winning disciples for Jesus. And, and they were supposed to do this starting in Jerusalem and then into Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And, and they did, even without Twitter or email or um, Facebook or YouTube or, or satellite TV, they were able to reach the entire world in one generation. The whole of the known world, the Roman Empire, was covered with the gospel. And you hear stories, um, you've heard of St. Patrick, right? Yeah, well, he wasn't called St. Patrick um, when he was alive, uh, but he took the gospel all the way to Britain, to the edge of the Roman Empire. And, and that was in the 100s, just barely after the apostles were around. So the gospel went all over the world in a very, very short period of time. This is a picture of the early church, a pure church that takes the gospel to conquer the world. But, well, they weren't the only seal, and it wasn't the only horse, and, and things... Uh, well, I should say this one. Paul makes this statement in Colossians. The gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven. He's making this clear. We took the gospel everywhere. Um, but, but the devil doesn't really like this. He sees the gospel going and he says, this has got to stop. And he starts to put the pressure on. And he creates trouble for the church. And you can find this in Revelation 6, 3, where he introduces the second seal. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted um, to the one who sat on it to take the peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. So white is the color of purity, red is the color of impurity, bloodshed, sin, death. And the Bible predicts that the, the peace would be taken away from the earth. And that's exactly what happened. Um, the Roman Empire, under the influence of Satan, I'm sure, ends up putting the screws on the Christian church. Um, I mentioned the guy named Diocletian. And uh, there was several, actually, not just him. Um, there was one guy, you might have heard of Nero, um, the, the part of Rome started to burn, and Nero didn't want to be the one that's blamed, although he probably set the fire so that he could clear some land and build something he wanted to build. Uh, but he didn't want to be blamed for, for destroying the eternal city, and so he blamed it on the Christians, and, and then he persecuted them for it. And, and then there was Diocletian and some uh, really harsh things that they would do. Well, Basically, this is such a bad period of time, Christians would be sown 
into the uh, skins of animals, thrown into an arena, and fed to dogs. Uh, they would be dipped in tar, put on crosses, and burned to light the, the way for, for the Olympics um, and the games that they would put on. Uh, it was really, really not a good time to be a Christian. Um, Peter was crucified upside down. John, the revelator, was dipped in boiling oil. Horrible, horrible experiences in Rome. Maybe you've heard of the guy named Polycarp. Um, Polycarp was a Christian around this time, and uh, he, was, <clears throat> he was taken to be burned alive. And right about the time that they were going to light the fire, uh, this, um, this Roman official says, Old man, why do you want to die? Just renounce Christ and you can live. What's the point of this? And Polycarp says this, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And when you, when you think about it, these people that believe in Jesus and know what Jesus promised, they're not afraid. And so the more the persecution happens, the more the screws are tightened on the Christian church, well, it kind of does the opposite of what they're, what they're expecting. The devil wants it to be quashed and not to go to the world anymore. And, and what ends up happening is, um, well, kind of the opposite. In uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, uh, they, they say that every single delegate that was there had been wounded or maimed in some way by the Roman Empire. They were losing, uh, they had lost limbs or toes or fingers or something in torture. They had uh, been burned or, you know, in some way been, been harmed. Every single delegate um, had uh, at least one evidence of the torture of Rome. And that's the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of heaven is a come and see, here's a gift. And the kingdom of darkness is, if you don't do what we want, then you're going to get some punishment, some torture, some pain. And, uh, and every, time, every time that you see force, you're seeing the kingdom of Satan. One of the early church fathers named Tertullian pointed out that the harder the Romans tried to wipe the church off the planet, uh, the, the more the message of Jesus spread around. He, he said it like this, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. He compared it to like mowing grass. You cut down a blade of grass and 20 more pop up. <laughs> Every drop of blood that the martyrs shed was a seed that planted the gospel in more people's hearts. Why did the Roman church hate, or why did the Roman Empire hate the Christian church? Well, I mean, it wasn't like the, the Romans were intolerant of religions. They had lots and lots and lots of them. So why would they single out the Christians for torture and punishment? Well, I, th I think it's probably because the Christian church um, was a church that was unwilling to consider Caesar as a god. And at the time, you know, you want your people to, to trust you. You're the emperor. You want to you be trusted. And so you ask them a simple thing. It's not a big deal. Just burn a little bit of incense now and again. And at one point, they actually issued uh, little certificates to say that you'd done this. Um, like, yeah, I'm, I'm for the Caesar. I'm good. And you just burn a little incense in the temple of Saturn. Not a big deal. But the Christian said, absolutely not. He is not a god, and we cannot do that. Our conscience will not let us. And, uh, and so they wouldn't. 
and the Christians ended up standing out like a sore thumb. Uh, and, and it's not like anybody actually believed that Caesar was a god. That's not, that's not the, the point. Um, nobody thought that he was the god, but he represents the Roman Empire. He's the embodiment of the Roman Empire. So if you don't do this little thing, you're basically saying that you don't believe in the entirety of the Roman Empire. And so at one point, they, they um, take Christians completely out of uh, the, the government and uh, the army for fear that they might rebel in some way. Um, and and they, they take away the possibility for them owning businesses or doing, doing business in, in uh, many ways. Um, and, and the reason is because they believed that Christianity was interfering with the, the unity of the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. If, if the Christians are allowed to proliferate, then Rome is not going to have peace anymore. That's kind of the theory. One group happened to be exempt, and that's the Jews. They observed only one God. They did not sacrifice to Caesar. And the reason that they were exempt is because a while back, they got on Julius Caesar's good side because they helped him get elected. And, uh, and so he gave them an exemption, and they were called a... They were called a... Um, they, they were called a, a um, oh, I just forgot the name of it. It's like, like the, the, the religion of this region or whatever. It's an official religion. So that was okay. They had that religion. And Christians kind of fell under that that umbrella for a while until they started to realize that Christians weren't Jews. And then Christians, they stood out. Um, and one of the reasons that Christians stood out is because they weren't interested in going to the Roman hospitals. Because a priest of Euscabius would, I think that's how you pronounce it, Esculapus, es, Esculip, uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> that one, Esculapius, thank you. <laughs> I tried to pronounce this like 20 times. <laughs> anyway, a priest of this guy, <laughs> the snake god, uh, would come and do some ritual over everybody that was in the hospital. And they just didn't have any interest in that. And, and the Christians weren't comfortable with um, the Roman education because the Romans taught all these different gods and these alternate theories of, of the beginning of the world. And the Christians weren't comfortable with Roman entertainment because they would take the uh, condemned criminals and they would throw them into the arena and have, make them kill each other or make them fight animals animals until they died. Um, they would take people who were supposed to, you know, be condemned in some way, um, and they would use them in their theaters. And if they're, you know, if the, the guy who was writing the play called for a death scene, they would just take one of these guys and kill them. Um, you know, it made it more realistic. So that, that was just not something the Christians cared to participate in. And uh, not only did that occur. You know, they don't believe in the Roman gods. They won't sacrifice to Caesar. They don't participate in common culture. But also, they're, they're strange. They called each other brother and sister. And they talked about going to love feasts, and so people thought of them as incestuous. And, and sometimes they talked about drinking the blood and eating the body of Christ, and so they thought they were cannibals. The, the perspective that the people had about Christians was completely erroneous, but it, it certainly led to discrimination against them. And that, that guy Diocletian from 303 to 313 put so much pressure on the Christians that the, the death was just unbelievable during that time. But it didn't last forever. Eventually, there's another horse that uh, rides onto the scene, and that red horse leaves. 
Revelation 6, 5 says, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. The rider of this horse has scales. What are scales for? Measuring. You have a weight, right? And there's something that you're comparing it with. This is compared to that. And that comparison is a form of judgment. Every time that you measure something, you're, you're, you're making a judgment here. And uh, this, this kind of makes me squirm a little bit when you think about judgment. Uh, God's revealing some truth in our Christian history. And uh, so let, let's keep reading. Verse 6, I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil or the wine. This writer moves us into the next period of earth's history um, from about 312 AD on. And uh, something happens. It's the time of the emperor Diocletian. He's divided the kingdom into two halves, and he's given um, some authority to to these four different people. Um, It's uh, the uh, Tetrarchy. And uh, soon after Diocletian retired, um, the, the four rulers started to fight for control. And then a fifth guy comes onto the scene, and he's, he's a little bit unhappy because he was passed over for promotion, and he ends up uh, maneuvering politically so that the Senate ends up giving him the emperor role, and his name is Maxentius. And Maxentius, um, he, he wasn't necessarily a strong emperor, and uh, he knew when, uh, when somebody came with an army to put him in his place that he was not in a good position to hold his throne. And so this guy named Constantine um, marched up, and people started crying out in the city, Constantine is coming, Constantine is coming. And uh, so Maxentius, he knew he couldn't beat Constantine in a fair fight, so he hid inside the city. And trying to make everybody happy and, and not stress too much, he threw a party and, and specifically threw, like, had them come to a race, like a, a horse race. And uh, at this race, somebody says, hey, Maxentius, is it true that, that uh, you're really going out to fight Constantine? And, I mean, what are you going to say? You're like, you know, all macho and stuff. He's like, well, uh, um, and then somebody else starts um, chanting and saying, yeah, you know, you can do it. And so he's got to. He's got to. He's got to march out there and fight Constantine. So um, he goes out and he fights. And, uh, but, but he knows he's got to go out and fight. But before he goes, he, he's, he goes to the soothsayers and he asks them, um, is, is there some kind of sign? Like, what's going to happen? And so they look at their scrolls and they do their things and they say, um, tomorrow the enemy of Rome will die. And Maxentius thinks, well, Constantine's the enemy, so this is good news. And then the, the news kind of spreads around Rome and then kind of gets out to Constantine's soldiers, and Constantine's soldiers hear that Maxentius has a sign that he's going to win. And uh, so Constantine is kind of thinking on his feet, and, and uh, he decides that uh, he's going to give a sign to his soldiers to give them courage. And so he puts this sign, the, the, the chiro, on the, uh, has them put it on their, their, uh, their shields. The chi is that X, the, the Greek letter, um, it looks like the X, and the row is that letter that looks like a P. And uh, well, a lot of people thought that the chi row or key row is uh, uh, kind of, it's the first letters of Christ, Christus, and so they thought that, that he was expressing a Christian sentiment. And they're like, oh, look, it's the Christian emperor. 
And he does. He ends up marching in and he, well, he doesn't kill Maxentius. Maxentius falls off his horse and drowns in the river. So Constantine marches into Rome and uh, unlike most emperors that would go um, after after a victory coming into Rome, um, they would go up and, and they would sacrifice to some gods. Um, Constantine didn't march up those steps and he didn't make any sacrifices. And some would suggest that it's because his mom was a Christian and he was kind of on the fence about the whole pagan gods thing. He was okay with them, but he also kind of tended to prefer Christianity. But, but even though Christians like to say that Chiro was uh, a Christian symbol, a symbol for Jesus, that symbol that you see on the screen um, actually predates Christianity and was a pagan symbol for Crestus, which means the uh, victory, like with an E, not an I. It means victory or good luck. And so he puts a victory or good luck sign on their, on their, um, their shields. He ends up winning. And it wasn't until 12 years later, almost a decade afterwards, that somebody, some historian was asking him to tell his story. And he says that he looked up and he saw the sign and, and that a voice called out from the heavens saying, in this sign conquer. And, and he kind of changes the story a bit as though the cross ends up being this sign that he would conquer, and Jesus is the one that led him. But the truth is, whatever the story, whatever the reality was, the truth is that Constantine was favorable towards Christianity. And in this favorable thing, he, he ends up getting in with the bishops, and, and at, at one time, he kind of helps organize some disputes that they've got. He, he uh, gives a... Um, he gives a palace to the head pastor in Rome, the bishop in Rome, and then he builds a, a basilica to St. Peter, the original St. Peter's Basilica um, on the Vatican Mountain. And at this point, when Constantine gets in, persecution is gone. No more persecution for the Christians, which sounds like a really good thing. I mean, just raise your hand if you're, if you're itching for some persecution. No? <laughs> I don't love the idea of persecution, but, but here's what happens. When Constantine gets in, um, Constantine is not a Christian. Uh, no offense if somebody thinks that he was. Um, he becomes baptized at the end of his life, refuses to be baptized until the very end. And um, for his entire life, he refuses to agree that Jesus is God. Um, so, yeah, he was favorable towards Christianity, but not really a, a faithful Christian. And uh, so the, the guy, he eliminates persecution, but brings in political favors. And so people would become Christians for the social and political benefits. And now you have sincere Christian, Christ-following believers, and then you have these guys that, that are just like, yeah, I'm Christian too. And they do it because they want to get on Constantine's good side. And that's a completely different motivation than the authentic, faithful Christian experience that the Bible encourages us to have. And there's a, there's a story about Constantine marching his soldiers through a river to baptize them. Just here's a, a trivia question. What do you get when you, when you baptize or when you march a bunch of pagans through a river? We'll just say it that way. You get wet pagans, yes. You haven't changed any hearts. You just end up with, with um, somebody that's uh, maybe a little cleaner. 
They took a bath. The, the thing about Christianity is there are no grandkids with Christianity. God only has children. And it's each one's individual opportunity and responsibility to respond to God in faith. You can't march a crowd into a river and say they're baptized. So the years go by and, uh, and the church starts to get more politicized. And, and, and then as things go on, you end up with this, uh, this tension in the church. There's those that want to be faithful to God's Word and those that are like, hey, why, you know, this is kind of the culture of the day. What's the deal? Why don't we just do this? And uh, those like compromising Christians became the, the majority of Christians and the minority of Christians were the ones that stayed faithful to God's Word. Um, as a result, um, the official, the empire's official version of Christianity um, pushed the authentic Christian faith into, well, into hiding, to be honest. When Rome stopped persecuting Christians, Christians started persecuting Christians. And where do you learn that? It's not from Jesus. Jesus didn't act like that, but the Romans did. The Romans dealt with force with anybody who disagreed with them. And so when the Roman Christian church was relating to other Christians who disagreed with them, they used force. Remember I mentioned earlier, wherever you see force, it's always the principle of evil. It's never going to be the God's principles. So at this point in history, the church stopped changing the world like it was in the white horse experience, and now the world starts changing the church. Um, when, we, uh, when we have this experience politicizing and socializing Christianity, something else starts to happen. Greed is no longer a big deal. And people who are in power tend to try to get money, don't they? And so what we started to do is we started to sell, we started to sell the gospel. It's something that God promised to give out freely, we asked for money for. And look at this one. He's, there, there's this measurement thing, and, and he's weighing out um, a measure of wheat for a penny or a denarius in, uh, in the, um, that, that age, and, and three measures of barley for a penny. Uh, the penny or the denarius, that's a day's wage. And now look at this, a measure of wheat or three measures of barley. You can't feed a family on a measure of wheat or three measures of barley a whole day's wage, and you're, you're barely getting enough nutrition to survive for your family. Can, can you live like that? That's not possible. And that's the kind of thing the church started to do. Just the tiniest, meagerest little bits of the gospel, and you had to, you had to pay for it in order to get it. And that, that's not what the Bible describes. God says, come to me and drink and eat without money, without price, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I have food to eat of which you know not. The Bible describes the gospel as this food, the bread of life, and, and it's free. Now, don't get me wrong. A church has to pay the electric bill somehow, right? There, there's expenses that are involved in the gospel message. Even Paul says that uh, the labor is worthy of the money that you pay him to hire him. 
and, uh, and so is the gospel worker. Um, it's not like God intends the gospel to go out without any financial transaction, but you can't say, like, if you want the gospel, you have to pay me for it, and nobody should be getting rich telling people about the good news of Jesus. Do we see people today getting rich off the gospel? I've heard of people, um, big churches, driving around in Rolls Royces and new Mercedes and wearing Rolexes and, you know, fancy clothes and stuff. And uh, it, when you see that, there's something in a, a thinking person's heart that says there's something wrong there. I heard of one pastor who had a jet or two and, and millions of dollars are spent from this church's budget on flying this guy to speaking appointments. I mean, I don't love being in the, the uh, cabin of a big plane, but um, I can't imagine justifying owning my own plane just to get me from here to there, right? Um, there's something about that, um, that that strikes us wrong. This is not the way that the gospel should be presented. So, um, when you look at this story, you've got, a, you've got this horse, a measure of wheat for a penny, selling the gospel, and, and then he leaves. That horse rides off the scene. And in Revelation 6, 7, the fourth seal is open. A fourth horse comes on the scene. He says, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on, on it was death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to him for over a, a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Oof. I mean... The, the black horse was bad news, but the pale horse is even worse. Pale is, well, it's the color of lifelessness. <laughs> you don't have any blood left in you. And, uh, and it's, the, it's the kind of experience the church had in the dark ages. The, the blood of the gospel, so to speak, the Jesus' sacrifice is drained out of the church. People stopped reading the Bible um, we lost track of the gospel message, and it was a really horrible time, not just for Christians, but for anybody in the Dark Ages. Um, education went down. Science went down. Um, they didn't want people to read because you read and you start to realize that um, the people who are holding the power and, and getting all the money um, are doing so on false pretenses, and so they keep people um, as dumb as possible, and they keep this hierarchy as, as as uh, structured and strong and rigid as possible. And the hierarchy they got, they didn't get from the Bible. They got it from the Roman Empire. Um, And even though people aren't reading the Bible and there's problems, there are still Christians, faithful believers in God and in the Bible. Um, And and even though the church has no message, no mission, no passion, it's literally the Bible is chained to the pulpits. If you want to read, you have to read it in Latin, and, and most people didn't know Latin, and you had to read it on the pulpit. In fact, by the time that Martin Luther was there, he had to go back behind the, the doors, uh, locked doors in, a, in a, um, a library to find a Bible. They just weren't that common. But some people were keeping the Bible alive, like the Valdo or the Waldensians, and they hid in the Alps, the mountains of the Alps in Italy and France. And, and these were people that they kept the Bible 
and they would, they would translate it, or, or transcribe it, I should say, and, uh, and they would take it in their garments, and they would go, and, and they would find people in the universities or in towns or whatever that were interested in knowing the gospel, and they would, they would take this, these little things that were sewn into their garments with the Bible written on them, and they would share them with people. And uh, let's just say they were not welcomed by the official church. Um, they were persecuted and killed. It was a really, really hard time in Earth's history. Um, they say that millions and millions of people died um, at the hands of the church. But the pale horse doesn't last forever. It's the last horse, though. And, and some people are tempted to think that because the four horses are done, the prophecy is done, but it's not done. There's hope. There's, there's a, another seal, a couple more actually. So Revelation 6, 9 is the fifth seal. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. These are the people like the Waldensians who at one point were like literally by the, the, the armies of the church, they were driven off to the edge of a cliff, and then thrown off onto the rocks. The blood of those faithful Christians was crying out to God, how long until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth, on the pale horse, the guy who had death and Hades following after him? And, and you have to ask this question, does God see our pain? Does he know our experience? Does he care about the stuff we go through? And the answer is absolutely yes. Psalms 56, 8, you number my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? There we go. Psalms 56, 8. The truth is God keeps track of everything. He pays attention to everything. That um, previous verse they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, till you judge and avenge our blood? And he says, not long. I've got a plan. Look in verse, um, verse 12. He says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. This, this time in history is an interesting time because right at the end of that pale horse, when everything looked the bleakest, you've got a bunch of people from all different walks of life, Martin Luther and Zwingli and Huss and Jerome and Calvin and Tyndale and all these people were starting kind of a little fire of, uh, of the gospel going. And, and you have people saying, but what does the Bible say? but what does the Bible say? Go back to the Bible. Wait, that's not in the Bible. And they kept, go, they kept exploring the Bible and finding new things that they'd lost for years and years before. The embers of the gospel are beginning to be fanned into uh, a flame, and, uh, and it starts to, to just take over Europe. And in the context of this fifth seal, you get the you get the next thing that, that, that happens, the next seal that's opened. And it's the 1700s by this time. And, uh, and when you see this, he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black and the moon became like blood. And then one more verse, he says, uh, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth and if, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Now, pay close attention to the order of those events. You've got an earthquake, you've got the sun going dark, you've got the moon turning red, you've got the stars falling from the heavens. 
And, and this is not just an isolated thing here in the sixth uh, seal. Um, you also got this in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Luke 21, Joel 2, always in the same order, always this, the same kinds of words being described. And it's not a coincidence that at the end of the 1700s, um, in, in that time frame, right after the fifth seal, and these martyrs are crying out and saying, when are you going to avenge us? And the gospel begins to come back to life, that there's a, a great earthquake. I think God, from Joel all the way into the New Testament, is saying, there's going to be something cool that's going to happen, and, and I'm going to tell you about it before it happens. So when it happens, you'll know that this is a sign of the end. So it's 1755, Lisbon. Um, there's a great earthquake. I mean, this is a significant earthquake that levels the entire city of Lisbon. It's felt a thousand miles away. Um, it's felt down in, in, um, in North Africa. Um, it's uh, leveled cities in, um, on the coast there in, in southern uh, Europe. They felt it in Scandinavia, um, in the Caribbean. It, it had uh, tidal waves that came in over there. It was a big deal. It was the talk of the world. It was the biggest news of their day, kind of like our Fukushima or, or the, the earthquake in Haiti, right? It's a big, big deal to them. And, and it, it was something that they started relating to the Bible because in the 1700s, as they started to explore the Bible, they, they kind of crept across this prophetic stuff. And so they read about this earthquake, and they looked at that earthquake, and they said, this sounds like the right thing. This must be the sixth seal. And uh, if you go to Lisbon today, you'll still see stuff that was happening, uh, stuff that happened and was impacted by that, hurt, um, that earthquake. You've got like this, uh, this church, the Carmo Church. 266 years ago was when that earthquake hit, and yet it's still not been rebuilt. It's just an open amphitheater today. And there's places all around Lisbon that are, you can see the results of that. An old preacher went to the Gosling Memorial Library in uh, Newfoundland a few years ago, and he found this. And it was a record of that experience. I've been informed by several respectable individuals that at the time of the great earthquake in Lisbon in 1755, the effects were felt at Bonavista. The sea retired and left the bed of the harbor dry for the space of 10 minutes. Um, the, the impact was huge. What, what comes next? In that, it's an earthquake, what's next? The sun becomes dark. And, and people started to wonder, like, will that happen too? And it wasn't very long later, about 35 years later, there's this dark day in 1780. And it was weird. Now, the first one, the earthquake was in the old world, the Western Europe, but this one's in the new world. And uh, it happens in the, in, mostly in the northeast of the United States. And it's one of those things that's hard to describe. The scientists still don't know why it happened or what it was. Some say it was uh, fires out of Canada, and others say there's some other um, issue that was going on. They, they say that you couldn't even see a piece of paper held out by your hand. Um, like, it was so dark in the middle of the day that you, you couldn't see very well. The roosters went to bed. Not the roosters. What are they called? The chickens. They went to roost, right? And um, people, uh, there, there was a... Uh, the assembly in Connecticut uh, doing the political lawmaking stuff, they actually stopped conducting business for a while. Um, and people started to shout, it's the end of the world, because it was so weird. Now, this is a record of that. 
The low-hung sky was black. This is by John Greenleaf Whittier. It's a a poem. Uh, The low-hung sky was black with ominous clouds. Birds ceased to sing and all the barnyard fowls roosted. The cattle at the pasture bars lowed and looked homeward. Bats on the leathern wings flitted abroad. The sound of labor died. Men prayed and women wept. All ears grew sharp to hear the doom blast of the trumpet shatter the black sky. Meanwhile, in the old state house, dim as ghosts sat the lawgivers of Connecticut, trembling beneath their legislative robes. It is the day, of the great, the Lord's great day. Let us adjourn, someone said. And then, as if with one accord, all eyes returned to Abraham Davenport. He rose slowly, cleaving with his steady voice the intolerable hush. This well may be the day of judgment which the world awaits. Be it so or not, I only know my present duty and my Lord's command to occupy till he come. So at the post where he hath set me in his providence, I choose for one to meet him face to face. No faithless servant frightened from my task, but ready when the Lord of harvest calls. And therefore, with all reverence, I would say, let us go, let God do his work. We will see to ours. Bring in the candles. (laughs) This was not a small event. It was something that lots of people experienced. Sir William Herschel talked about it, saying that the dark day of North America is one of those wonderful phenomena which will always be read with interest, but which philosophy is at a loss to explain. Philosophy may be at a loss to explain it, but the Bible is not. The Bible says these great signs are part of this sixth seal. The first sign The earthquake happens in the old world. The second sign, the dark day, happens in the new world. What happens next? The dark day and then what? The moon becomes as blood. blood. And and it's actually just a week later that uh, a magazine in New York, the New York State, um, says this, We have seen the dark day, and though I didn't see it, I was informed that the moon looked like blood the following night. And right then, you have this this, uh, follow-up experience to the dark day, and, and everybody is saying... This is the time of the end. And the reason they were saying it is because they were reading Bible prophecy. It was not an obscure thing for them. Most Christians were in Bible prophecy at the time. And, and so this was just lining right up with what they were seeing already. For some reason, maybe it's because we're the Laodicean church and think we're cool and don't even need to, to read it, but um, for some reason, the church of our day doesn't tend to read this stuff and, and isn't aware of the history and how our church resonated with these events in history. Um, and what was supposed to go along... Oh, sorry. The, the, the next thing is the falling of the stars, right? And you know what they say? Right there in the New York State Magazine, it seems like the next thing should be the stars. Um, so, did the stars happen? Uh, yes, they did. It was November 13, 1833. Now, in November, pretty much every year, you, you can see the Leonids. They're the falling stars, and uh, on a good year, you'll see 40 or 50 an hour. And uh, just lay out there uh, if the sky is clear, and you can see a bunch of falling stars. But in 1833, just roughly 50 years after the, the uh, dark day, you have this amazing experience and uh, there was something like, I've got it written down, thousands, 250,000 falling stars per hour, 4,000 a minute, 70 falling stars every single second. It was so bright. 
Um, someone, on looking out of the window, observed that it was almost broad daylight. That cannot be another answered, for it is scarcely three o'clock in the morning, 3 a.m. I can't help what the clock says, replied the first speaker. My eyes cannot deceive me. It is almost broad daylight. Look for yourself. I heard one of the children cry out in a voice express, expressive of alarm, Come to the door, Father. The world is surely coming to an end. Another exclaimed, See, the whole heavens are on fire. All the stars are falling. These cries brought us all into the open yard to gaze upon the grandest and most beautiful scene my eyes had ever beheld. It appeared as if every star had left its moorings and was drifting rapidly in a westerly direction, leaving behind a track of light which remained visible for several seconds. Do you know who else saw this thing happen? A young Abraham Lincoln. And this is what Abraham Lincoln said. One night I was roused from my sleep by a rap at the door and I heard the deacon's voice exclaiming, Arise, Abraham, the day of judgment has come. I sprang from my bed and rushed to the window and saw the stars falling in great showers. And the impact was huge. This massive scale of, this, of, of the Leonids, the, the meteorites, made everybody go back and look at that prophecy again. And what we find in the 1830s, and this happens in 1833, um, partly as a result of this experience and partly just as a kind of a stirring in the Christian church as a whole, the Christians have a revival, and it's called the Second Great Awakening. Um, massive uh, uh, revival. Every church across the world, not just in, in the, the United States, but across the world was experiencing a renewal of Christian experience. And people were going back to the Bible and praying and, and uh, people that had been in the bars most days were now coming to the, to the church and leaving the bars, leaving their drink behind. It was a, a fantastic revival in the Christian experience. And partly it had to do with the, the last of these signs in the sixth seal. Now, when we look at this, we've seen the four horsemen, the fifth seal with the, the martyrs crying out um, and the response of Christians going back to the Bible, the sixth seal with these fantastic natural signs, and every single one of these first six seals has already happened. That leaves just one seal left. And what, what happens? This would put us today on the doorstep of the seventh seal. And let's read it for ourselves in Revelation 6, 14. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who is saying the wrath of the Lamb has come? It's not the people that know the Lamb, it's the wicked. Just think about that for a moment. How many of you have lambs at home? Lambs, like little lambs, yeah? We got at least one family with lambs at home. Tell us, Perry, are lambs angry? Not generally. And if they are angry, it's probably kind of cute. <laughs> the wrath of the lamb? What are they talking about? This is the lamb, Christ Jesus, who gives his life on our behalf. This is not an angry God. And yet they are afraid because they don't know who they're talking about. So, so what is this event that they're describing? What is this next thing that happens after the sixth seal? 
It's the second coming. It's, it's the coming of Jesus. And if you, if you read in Revelation 8, 1, you find this, and when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for the space of about half an hour. Why, why is there silence in heaven? What's going on? Well, let me ask you a question. Can anybody be making noise in heaven if nobody is there? If you go to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, it says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. How many of the holy angels come with Jesus at His second coming? All of them. Heaven is empty. There's nobody in heaven to make a noise. And so heaven is silent in the seventh seal because earth has the glorious appearing of Jesus. When Jesus comes, everybody joins Him. Do you know why God gives us Bible prophecy? What's the point? Why does God tell us these things? It's so that He can give us hope for the future. Have you ever driven in a blizzard? I mean, I'm talking about the stuff is just flying at your window so fast and so thick that you can barely see the guy that's uh, just a few car lengths ahead of you. The lights are basically dim. You've been in that kind of thing, right? It's scary. You can't see the lines on the road, and especially if the, if the snow has been accumulating for a bit. Um, and I've been on Highway 95 in the dark, and uh, it, it can be a scary experience. You're driving down, and suddenly you see that you're in the middle of the road, and so is the guy that's coming at you, and you have to get, a, get over to the side and get, get on your lane and not go off the edge. It is scary. And and it's that, that moment when you come down the hill, down Peterson Hill, and you, you see the lights in Bonner's Ferry and the signs start to, to show up and, and you, you start to feel like you know where things are and that pretty soon you're going to be in your, in your um, own home with the people that love you and the warmth, that, that you start to have peace and hope. <laughs> but for that whole drive going up there, you're, you're, you're stressing. And God knows that this is not an easy experience for His church. And, and you might be tempted to be like, the Lord delays His coming, and He doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about our experience. But that's not true. He does care, and it's like He's turning on the lights throughout history to help us recognize where we are and to say, we're almost home. We're almost there. Have you taken your kids on a long drive before? What do they say? How much farther? Are we there yet? And it seems like they ask all the time. And I bet Jesus is kind of smiling when he hears us saying, when, Lord, are you going to come? When will this be over? Are we there yet? And Jesus, through prophecy, is saying, we're getting really close, really close. And that's why we have Bible prophecy. God gives us prophecy to help us see how near we are to his return. Let's pray. Father in heaven, tonight we believe that you care. It's obvious from the way that you've illuminated history even before it's happened. It's obvious from the way that you sometimes even lovingly show us the way we really are. Tonight we can see it. We're getting close and we long to see Jesus face to face. Tonight we choose to believe Jesus is coming and the reason he's coming is that he loves us. We want to be ready Tonight, we choose to be ready, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, tomorrow night, 
same place, 7 o'clock.